Good morning. Good to be back. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, or passages printed in your bulletin if you want to take that and follow along. We are beginning a eight or so week sermon series based on the seven letters to the seven churches of Western Turkey or Asia Minor. And the purpose, I, what I thought it would be good at the start of the new year is to look and see what are some Christ-like traits of churches? What, does, what, are, what does Jesus want to do and shape? How does he want to shape all saints in 2015? So that's the, that's the purpose of it. Today we read of the vision in chapter 1, and then chapters 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of a man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am, I am the living one. I was dead, and now, behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is, what is now, and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Amen. Yeah, it was not easy to get on the airplane in San Diego on Thursday, 62 and sunny. And we returned to this. Actually, Phoenix was pretty cold for the Fiesta Bowl. I left my jacket in the car because the University of Phoenix Stadium is an enclosed dome. I thought I would be comfortable enough inside without a jacket, but it was cold in there. And you know that uh, how the energy in a stadium builds right at the very beginning. You've got the band playing and marching 
there was the guy who, uh, you trumpets would appreciate this. It was some Grammy Award winning trumpeter and he played the Star Spangled Banner and he was electric. It was the, I mean, it was the best I've ever heard, the best Star Spangled Banner. But I mean, you get the, all of the hype and all of the build for the game. It reaches that crescendo at kickoff. And Shelton and I are sitting up in the nosebleed seats up in section 410. I brought my binoculars in order to be able to follow the ants running, running around on the field. And there at kickoff, I'm trying to, trying to watch it, and my, my hands are just trembling. And I feel like I'm going through an earthquake. The, the scene is just shaking up and down because I'm so cold and because I'm, I'm so exhilarated and excited for, the, for that moment. Why don't I ever feel that way about Jesus? As, as cliche as that is, um, why don't I tremble at, at this Jesus? Is a question we ought to ask. Why is our Jesus so unintimidating, so non-exhilarating, if he really is as he's pictured in this passage? So verse, is it verse 9? We're just going to go through and walk through the, the different verses here one by one. John is uh, on the Lord's Day, Sunday morning. It's, he is on the island of Patmos. Calling Patmos an island is probably being <laughs> generous. It is a small little rock in the Aegean Sea, about 35 miles southwest of, of Turkey. It's where the Romans would send political prisoners into exile. And in the, ca- in the case of John, he's there because of his fearless preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They want to wash their hands of him, so they send, send him away on, on this little deserted eight-mile by five-mile piece of rock, effectively, in the Aegean Sea. The, there might have been stone quarries on the northern end of the island where the prisoners, the exiles, were expected to work themselves to death. There might not have been at this time, but here's John all alone by himself because of suffering for his faith on Sunday morning, and there's not a worship service for him to attend. So he's praying, it says, in the Spirit. He's praying to Jesus, and all of the sudden, who, who shows up <laughs> and introduces himself to John? He says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. We read at the end of the passage, the seven lampstands signify the seven churches. So the way that I've reconstructed this, I envision that John is facing east, no, sorry, facing west when he's praying. All of a sudden, he hears that great voice behind him, and he turns. So he's looking back to the east towards the mainland, and he sees out in the distance where where these seven cities would have been located, uh, he sees instead these, these seven candlesticks sticking up in their respective geographical locations where the cities would be. You say, well, where else in the Bible do you find seven candlesticks? The answer is you find it in the tabernacle. In the seven candlestick uh, menorah, which was in the presence of God in, in the temple. And he looks and he sees that the churches are those candlesticks. And who's among them but none other than Jesus? What is the symbolism of this passage? Well, 
Again, it's the Lord's Day. It's Sunday. It's Sunday morning. They are, the, all of these seven churches are worshiping on Sunday morning. And I think the image is that when they are at worship in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's like they have been raised up into the heavenly tabernacle. And there they are in the presence of Jesus. It doesn't feel that way. <laughs> uh, most Sunday mornings when you're singing, Be Thou My Vision, you don't really mean it. <laughs> but it can feel like Jesus is a million miles away. But the reality of what's happening is you are being lifted up into heaven with him. Verse 13, and let's see, uh, among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. The son of man, that was one of the favorite ways Jesus described himself. And it's taken from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 7, where one like a son of man, this Messiah-like figure, arrives on the scene in this prophetic vision given to Daniel, and he's one who will rule the nations in, in all of his grandeur. And so Jesus says, I am that. And here he is. He's dressed in a robe that reaches down to his feet. And with a golden sash around his chest. And verse 14, then we, he sees that uh, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And that's one of the most interesting parts of the description of Jesus Christ in Revelation 1. Because there's another figure in Daniel 7 who's described with hair as white as snow. There's the Son of Man, this, this great messianic figure, and there's also the Ancient of Days, who's, who's white-haired. And in Jesus, what John is saying is these, these two titanic figures of the prophecy are, are united in him. He's the Ancient of Days, and, and he's the Messiah. With eyes like blazing fire, it goes on. You, know, you probably need to take a little bit of time and think through what are each of these parts, the vision, what do they symbolize? What do the eyes blazing like fire symbolize? You know, maybe um, a laser-like gaze that can pierce through falsehood and deception and, and lies. His vision, vision that pierces all secrets. Verse 15. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. Burnished bronze. Uh, bright and, and shining, but, but sturdy. Sturdy, shining pillars. And what does it say about his voice? His voice is like, if you've ever been to, to Niagara, I've never, I'd love to go to Niagara Falls. Or if you've ever been to Shoshone, Falls out near Twin Falls when, at the right time of year, when they're letting all the water out and the, the you've heard the thundering of water, and that's what the the voice of Jesus sounds like. Verse sixteen, and in his right hand he held seven stars. Makes me wonder: Are they? stacked on top of each other <laughs> like a, a group of cards seven or what the picture I have is seven a garland of stars think of the garland that we put around our Christmas tree these stars we are told 
are the angels of the seven churches. We'll see next week and the seven weeks hereafter that each of the letters that are addressed are written right to the angel of the church of Ephesus or right to the angel of the church of Thyatira. See, why would Jesus command a human writer like John to write his words to heavenly beings when, I mean, Jesus could just talk to the angels and tell them, what are these angels associated with the churches? Are they guardian angels or territorial angels? Well, because that seems so weird, uh, one of the suggestions is that the, the angels are are the pastors. Because the word angelos in the Greek literally means messenger. It would make sense then that he says, write my words to the pastor messengers so that they will read my words to, to their churches. You know, I really like that interpretation. <laughs> Coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword which represents the word of God. The word of God is the sword of the Spirit and his face was shining uh, like the sun in all of its, all of its brilliance. So, so here I have an excerpt from a popular Christian book that was written in 2003. I'm not going to tell you the name of the book because I don't want to incriminate its author, but I'll give you a hint. It was made into a movie a couple of years ago. I think the difference in my life came when I realized after reading the Gospels that Jesus didn't just love me out of principle. He didn't just love me because it was the right thing to do. Rather, there was something inside me that that caused him to love me, which I disagree with. But, And I think I realized that if, if I walked up to his campfire, Jesus would ask me to sit down and he would ask, ask me to tell him his story or my story. He would take the time to listen to my ramblings and Listen to my anger until I calmed down. And then he would look me directly in the eye and he would speak to me. And I would sense in his voice and in the lines of his face that he liked me. He would rebuke me too. He would tell me that I have prejudices against very religious people and that I need to deal with them. And he would tell me that there are poor people in the world and I need to feed them. And somehow all of this will make me more happy. I think he would tell me what my gifts are and why I have them and explain to me how to use them. I think he would explain to me why my father left us. And he would point out very clearly all the ways that God has taken care of me through the years and all the stuff that God has protected me from. Uh, There are elements in that description that are accurate, aren't there? Jesus does, he really does like us. He really does care for us, and he's compassionate. He, he, our pains matter to him. But when you juxtapose that paragraph right next to this one, <laughs> you get the feeling that there is some level of disconnect, that that Jesus is, is very much the, the therapist, Jesus, you know, the guy that we go to, to to discuss all of our problems and the one who tells us how valuable we, we are. But it's not this Jesus. And I get it. I mean, like you read through the Gospels, most of the Jesus that we get in the Gospels is the pre-resurrected, pre-ascension, ascended Jesus. And I mean, maybe you read it and you could mistake him for a group therapist. 
but not the post-ascension Jesus. Not this Jesus reveals himself to two men in the New Testament. John on the island of Patmos, Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. And in both instances, when he shows himself to them, they, they come unglued. They come apart at the seams. Um, so to give you just a little more background on what was happening, then there, there was a tremendous persecution that was about to break out against the churches in, in that day. Uh, the fastest growing religion in the time at the end of the first century was none other than emperor worship. Caesar, hail Caesar, Caesar is, is divine. And these little cities in Western Asia Minor are all vying for imperial recognition. It would be kind of like the Apple Corporation deciding they're going to relocate their offices from Cupertino to one of seven small cities in the United States of America. And you can imagine that all of those cities are going to do everything in their power to make their bid for for this to be as, as persuasive as possible. That's what they're doing. They're all vying, jockeying for the emperor's favor. Well, we have erected this great giant, giant stone monument on your behalf. Well, we have started the Caesar Rose Festival. <laughs> uh, and well, we, we can top all of you. We, we just worship you on every morning of every day except for the Christians. So the Christians were, were, were such a threat because they threatened not only the, the society's mores, and they threatened their livelihood. They were going to jeopardize. I mean, these Christians wouldn't, they wouldn't burn incense to the emperor. They would never, they were threatening the very places that they lived. And so they were going to pay some of the readers of the book of Revelation did have holes drilled in their skulls and molten, molten lead poured, poured in there. Some of them did, were tied to ropes, fastened to horses, and pulled apart in two. And they were covered in pitch and lit, lit a, a fire like, um, uh, like torches in, in a garden. And the only way that they were going to persevere through through that was was by begin, being given this grand vision of Jesus Christ um, it's hard to believe in Jesus uh, it's hard I really think that believing in Jesus believing that Jesus is really real <laughs> And really like this, it's extremely difficult when you're sitting in the middle of 70,000 people at the Fiesta Bowl. Because <laughs> everything, okay, it could be any environment, but I just go back to my Fiesta Bowl stories. When, when you're there, it is so loud and exhilarating, and everything in front of you is so real. <laughs> it's, it's easy to believe in that. But it's extremely difficult to believe in a person who you have never heard his voice, have you? 
the rushing of many waters. You've never experienced, you've heard the rushing of 70,000 people clapping and screaming, but you never heard the voice like this. And you've never seen a face that burns like this. We basically have to take all of the post-ascended Jesus uh, descriptions and take them on faith and believe the witness of the two people who saw him like that. That's hard. Yes, so a tremendous persecution. These Christians needed this vision. Um, (laughs) I was sitting there uh, in the stadium, and and I thought, how many people here really believe that there is a Jesus Christ seated on the throne of the universe who is ruling in power and majesty all things? I mean, like, how many of even the Christians that are there think that there's— that think of Jesus in that fashion? We never talk about him— in that way, as this glorious, majestic power to be reckoned with. We, you know, I mean, we're almost always talking about the, the cuddly Jesus. And isn't it interesting that of all the people in the world who had the right to cuddle up to Jesus, it was none other than this, the disciple John. In fact, John does cuddle up to Jesus. Remember, John is the beloved disciple in the second the second seat of honor at the Lord's Supper in the Passover meal in the upper room. And because of the way that their bodies were positioned, his, his head was leaned up. He leaned his head up near Jesus' chest. Like if anybody had the right to cozy up to Jesus, it would be him. Um, and he falls at his feet as though dead. And you and I, I... I, I hope it's, it's not true, but it probably is. You and I have never, hardly ever, fall at his feet um, for any reason or another. Rob Rayburn at Faith Tacoma writes, uh, I go to the gym three times a week nowadays, and it almost, I almost never fail to think about the people that I see in the gym. <laughs> I see they're mostly young people. Not all, not all young, but but mostly 20-somethings. And, and I do wonder, what, what are their lives like? I wonder, what, they, what do they think about God and themselves? And what do, they, what do they think about the future? If they are thinking anything at all about God themselves or the future, I wonder if they have, have the glimmer of an idea that reality is not all what it appears to be. Reality is, is full of noise. It's, there are TV screens everywhere in the gym. You can watch CNN or listen to the talking heads chattering about football, politics. I mean, you're plugged in watching the television screen on the treadmill or you're plugged into your iPod. Are any of these people even dimly aware of the majesty that stands among the lampstands and holds the seven stars in their hands. Do they think of their lives at all in terms of the, of the catastrophe and the wonder that will come upon the world of mankind when Jesus returns? Let me pose that question back to us. Are any of us even, even dimly aware of the majesty that stands among the lampstands? Uh, the last thing I want to say to you is simply this, that Jesus, Jesus loves his church. 
he really loves, he loves, he, he gave his life not only for you and me, but he gave his life for the church. And over the next seven weeks, what I want us to do is look at each of these seven letters, the seven churches of Asia Minor, and to imagine what would it be like, uh, what would Jesus say if he wrote a letter to our church? Right. What, would the, what would the letter to all the saints in All Saints Presbyterian Church, Boise, Idaho, what would that letter, what would it say? Would we be excited to receive it? I, like all of us have had, <laughs> all of us have had that moment where there's a piece of mail that we can't wait to get. Maybe it was you walking out to your mailbox to get your SAT scores or your GRE scores. But I remember that I was trembling with, with excitement and nervousness. What would it contain? Would it contain critical words for our church? I think absolutely. You go through the seven letters, and he has a, he rebukes almost every one of them for something. I'm very open, seriously. I'm very open to being rebuked by Jesus and to having my church rebuked by Jesus. What, what does he want to say? Uh, would, it, would it be encouraging? Absolutely. Because he, in every one of the letters, he has something that he commends them for. All I want to know is... What is it? Jesus, what, what do you want to say? That's my challenge to you. Your New Year's resolution, yada, 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 is just to pray. Jesus, what is it you want to say to, to us, to this community? Um, pastors should not be the only people who care about that, <laughs> that question and, and answer. We're in this together. What is it that he wants to, to say to us? Encourage us where, where you are pleased with us. Tell us where we are, are lacking. Um, we admit that our picture of you is far too small and uh, give us a grander vision of what you are like. Write us a letter, Lord Jesus. We are ready to read it. Amen.